in trauma, that's going to look more like replaying the past, living in the past, rehearsing past events. Whereas in anxiety, it's going to look more like um, worrying about the future, all the what if questions that come up, all the preparation to make sure that something bad doesn't happen. But in practicality, what you might be experiencing in your body is very similar. Okay, I have to avoid any threats. I'm very on edge, intense. I'm having trouble sleeping. There's a lot of restlessness. So it, it feels really similar, um, but the actual focus and what's going on internally is quite different. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. I'm Shannon Jackson, former anxiety sufferer turned adventure mom and anxiety recovery coach. I struggled with anxiety, panic disorder, and agoraphobia for 15 years. And now I help people to push past the stuff that I used to struggle with. Each week, I'll be sharing real and honest conversations along with actionable and practical steps that you can take to help you push past your anxious thoughts, the symptoms, panic, and fears. Welcome. You're right where you're meant to be. Hi, Megan. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I am so excited for our conversation today. But before we get into our topic on trauma, can you just give us an introduction to who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Dr. Megan Johnson. Um, You can call me Megan. I am a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California. Um, I work primarily at a local hospital providing assessments and therapy on our inpatient units, Uh, but I also have a private practice in Santa Monica. It's based in Santa Monica, but it's now mostly online since 2020, Um, working with folks throughout the state of California um, where I specialize in trauma. And then from that, I created a trauma education platform called Traumastery. And that's um, this online platform where my colleague and I offer various educational courses and books and workbooks and blogs and all sorts of education on trauma, trauma-related topics, things like attachment theory, codependency, and all of that. So that's me. So cool. So well, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. I didn't know that about you. It's so oh, yeah. interesting. <laughs> when I have these conversations, I'm like, oh, I learned that people have podcasts and courses and all these things. So yeah. so cool. We'll definitely um, link to that in the show notes so that people can access that. All right. So let's dive in. We have yeah. a pretty big topic. And yes. I know you do a lot of work um, specifically with trauma. So mm-hmm. let's just start at the very beginning, right? Like what is trauma and what can it look like? Yeah. Defining trauma can be tricky. Um, so the DSM, our diagnostic manual that we use as therapists, has a really specific definition of what trauma is. Um, which essentially is defined as any experience that threatens death, serious injury, um, or sexual violence. And and that is true. All of those things are traumatic. And a lot of what we know about trauma comes from research with war veterans who've experienced combat. Uh, So a lot of our definitions around trauma reflect that. But trauma is, I see it as something broader. It's not just threatened death, threatened injury, threatened sexual violence. Um, It's really anything that affects our survival. Um, So a definition that I like to use of trauma is um, anything that happens too much or too quick in such a way that it overwhelms the nervous system. I like that. That's such a helpful definition because I think it is. It's it's, Mm -hmm. like we've said, it's such a broad um, thing, but it's helpful. I think, you know, it doesn't have to just be the big 
life-threatening, like the really, you know, the things that people most commonly think of. Mm -hmm. So I know too, you know, there's many different types of traumas. Um, Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, um, you know, a lot of folks who work in in trauma kind of differentiate between big T and little t trauma. So big T traumas being those things that the DSM would define as trauma. So life-threatening events, things that threaten your bodily integrity. But then there's all these little T traumas, which are things that happen more chronically that also affect your sense of your ability to survive and take care of yourself. Um, So that could be being in an emotionally abusive relationship. Um, That could be having parents who are maybe not necessarily abusive, but are neglectful and you don't know where your next meal is coming from, or you don't know who's going to be there to help you when you get hurt or who's going to pick you up from school. Um, Living in chronic poverty or violence, maybe nothing immediately threatens your life, but you're always kind of wondering, am I okay? Am I taken care of? And we call those little T traumas, um, not because they have a smaller impact on your brain and your nervous system, but because they happen in a more chronic fashion over time and add up. And the way our brain works is it doesn't really differentiate between big T and little T traumas. It responds to all of it the same. Um, So when we talk about big T traumas, yeah, we are talking about the the war, um, natural disasters, um, violence, near-death experiences, accidents, um, natural disasters, things that immediately in a moment feel like they're going to overwhelm you and potentially end your life. Whereas the little T traumas are those things that kind of stack up and make you feel like you are not going to survive over time. Gotcha. Thank you. That's helpful. It's a helpful breakdown because obviously there are so (laughs) many different types of trauma. So can you maybe walk us through what the responses look like to trauma, right? Because I know there are like some big pillars. Um, So can you walk us through what the trauma response actually looks like? Absolutely. So most people are familiar with the fight or flight response, which is kind of the classic um, response, the well-known response to any type of threat. And so this is when our brains um, respond to something that it perceives as threatening by either running away or fighting back. Um, and your, your brain will always encourage you as your first choice to run away, to get out, to avoid, to flee. That's always where we go first. We then turn to fighting if we can't run away or get out because that's not always an option. For example, in child abuse situations, you cannot flee your abuser because it is also your parent who's responsible for your well-being, putting food on the table, putting a roof over your head. And so in those cases, the nervous system doesn't actually tell you to flee. It tells you to fight. Um, So those are the two common ones, but there's actually four trauma responses. There's fight and flight, which we tend to be most familiar with. And then there's also freeze and fawn. Um, And I can kind of walk through each of those and what they look like. Um, But an important thing to know about them is that each of these trauma responses is, is natural and it's a healthy manifestation of your brain's survival instincts. Um, So they're not bad. They're survival strategies that contribute to our safety and well-being. They just become problematic and we overuse them or use them to avoid psychological pain that isn't necessarily threatening. Um, yeah, so I can just go, kind of go through each because um, they they sort of make sense with their name, but what they actually look like in, in practice and in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, um, so helpful. 
Yeah. So the fight, the fight response again, um, is fighting back against the threat. Um, and I like to break each of these down into like an example where they, where it can be really helpful and adaptive and an example where it's like less adaptive. So, um, if you are, let's say you're out on um, a hike and you encounter a bear, that's a threat. It could potentially, um, end your life or severely harm you. And so your body is going to respond to that threat. Your brain and your nervous system are going to respond to that threat um, in one of these four survival instincts. And so if you're in the fight mode, what you might do is attack that bear before he can attack you. And that's a way you can protect yourself. It's super effective when it comes to physical threats. It is less effective when it comes to psychological threats. So if we think about um, any type of relationship, and you feel vulnerable, your fight instincts might tell you, okay, attack that person, lash out before they can lash out at you. That's a little less effective. Um, so people who tend to use the fight mode, um, they might be aggressive, confrontational, um, attacking. Those are things you might notice in yourself if this is like your go-to response style. Um, and then in the flight mode, again, if you see that bear while you're out for a hike and you run away, that's probably really effective. You're going to uh, preserve your well-being, right? Less effective in relationships or with psychological pain. You can't run away from all psychological pain. You can't run away from people and have a rich and meaningful life. Um, and so for folks who overuse the flight responses can look like um, rushing, being overly goal-oriented, obsessive compulsive tendencies, restlessness, anything that you're kind of doing to keep busy and away from, from any of that uh, psychological stress. And then the two kind of lesser known ones, and these are really similar, um, the freeze and the fawn mode. And these are kind of where we turn when fighting's not an option, fleeing's not an option, and the nervous system has kind of been chronic um, survival mode. For a while, we turn to one of these. So free mode, freeze mode is really laying low and trying to go undetected. So again, if you saw the bear and you're like, okay, I'm going to stay really still so the bear doesn't see me and he doesn't eat me. Super effective. Less effective in relationships. Um, you can't just socially isolate. And, um, you know, you might not ever be triggered if you do that. But again, you might you have this really small existence and this really narrow life. Um, so for people who overuse freeze, this can look like social anxiety, um, hiding, tension, dissociation in its most extreme form. Um, and then the newest kind of um, trauma response, it's not new, it's just the research has really kind of tapped into it and we understand it a little better more recently. So with the fawn response, this is aligning with or complying with the threat. So if you encounter that bear when you're out on a hike, you might throw the bear some food so he eats the food instead of you. It's like appeasing the threat or the aggressor. Um, again, works really well for physical threats. It works less well for psychological threats. So in relationships, this really looks like codependency or not having a sense of self, being very passive and lacking boundaries. So I'm just going to do whatever this person says to not aggravate them and, and set them off in some way. So those are the four kind of responses to trauma that we as humans have. And most people tend towards one of the four, um, but some of us use more than one. Gotcha. Very helpful. So I know you know my community is mostly people struggling with anxiety, panic yeah. disorder, or agoraphobia. And I know for myself and also for many of my followers, I think 
you often are trying to figure out the root, right? You're always like, well, what is causing all of this? Why am I having this response? And I think a lot of the messaging that you see now on social media can lead you to, it's all because of trauma. Like I had to have experienced (laughs) some sort of trauma that landed me here. Can you maybe touch on that? Because I know I don't want, I know the people that are struggling are thinking, you know, trying to connect the dots. And I don't, I don't love the idea that everything is trauma. So can we get into that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. If everything is trauma, then nothing is trauma. Like it, it reduces the word and the meaning of what it is. And you are absolutely right. People can have any type of anxiety disorder, panic disorder, agoraphobia, without having any kind of trauma or trigger that brought that on. So the way that I really separate the two, because the the actual symptoms are really similar. They're both like an overactivation of our, um, of our anxiety response system is, is sort of what caused it. And anxiety disorders can develop for a variety of reasons, and they tend to be more chronic. And the focus tends to be on this worry about what's going to happen in the future as opposed to trauma, which is really specific. There's like a specific start and end. Um, Well, more so specifically a start. (laughs) And then it just kind of, you stay in it, you know? So it it tends to be more of a worry about something that happened in the past and a replaying of past events. So something that I ask clients when we're sort of in that exploratory phase of like, is this a trauma reaction or is this an anxiety disorder? Is when did this come on and what was going on? at that time in your life? Was there maybe a lot of instability and insecurity, a lot of worry about an upcoming transition? That sounds more like anxiety. Or did something acutely happen or had something been going on for a really long time that was traumatizing you? And this was kind of your nervous system's breaking point. And so even though they look really similar, I I kind of see the root cause of them as being different. And you're absolutely right. Not all anxiety is trauma. In fact, most anxiety is not trauma. Yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you. So I think I I came across a post of yours that I love, and it Mm -hmm. sort of helps to differentiate between anxiety and trauma. Can you maybe explain? It was like a really good post. (laughs) I'm like asking you to put, summarize this post essentially, but I think it laid out really well the differences. So can you maybe explain anxiety versus trauma? Definitely. Definitely. Um, so again, the, the symptoms are going to look really similar. Trauma is going to have some extra symptoms that may not be present in anxiety. So that's going to be things like flashbacks, re-experiencing, um, possible dissociation, Uh, But both of them are kind of an overwhelm or a misfiring of the nervous system. And in our brain, we have this little structure called the amygdala. I like to think of it as a fire alarm. That fire alarm goes off and we experience anxiety. Now, what happens for folks with an anxiety disorder is that alarm just gets accidentally randomly triggered. Like somebody accidentally pulled the fire alarm and now we're all responding as if a fire went off. And then you sort of develop this internal narrative of like, oh my gosh, I have to prevent that fire alarm from ever going off again because that was really stressful. (laughs) Whereas in trauma, the same sort of process is going on in your brain. However, it's triggered by an actual traumatic event and the obsession 
then becomes less about like, I can't have that, that fire alarm accidentally triggered and more about, I cannot be in that situation where I feel so threatened or the heat gets so high or the smoke gets so thick that the fire alarm goes off again. Um, so again, it's linked to a particular event. Um, and so in, in trauma, that's going to look more like replaying the past, living in the past, rehearsing past events. Whereas in anxiety, it's going to look more like um, worrying about the future, all the what if questions that come up, all the preparation to make sure that something bad doesn't happen. But in practicality, what you might be experiencing in your body is very similar. Okay, I have to avoid any threats. I'm very on edge, intense. I'm having trouble sleeping. There's a lot of restlessness. So it, it feels really similar. Um, but the actual focus and what's going on internally is quite different. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. I know like my own personal journey, this is a big piece, right? And like some of the questions that you said that you ask clients, it's such a big piece of recovery because it helps to distinguish like, yeah, you want to get at the root cause, especially if there was a trauma, but we don't have to go all the way back to your childhood to try to figure out why, you know, if it's trauma versus an anxiety disorder and then how to treat it. Mm -hmm. So Speaking to how to treat it, what does trauma healing actually look like? Yeah, this is another thing that I think social media has made very mysterious. <laughs> like, yes. There's a lot out there like, just do this one thing and all of your trauma will go away. And it's like, well, that one thing could be helpful for some people, but it's not like this cure-all. And, and same with anxiety, right? Like there's yeah. all these tools and strategies and things we can do to help ourselves to calm down. But that doesn't mean that like, okay, you meditate once and your anxiety goes away. It doesn't work like that. That'd be um, lovely. <laughs> I know, right? Well, we'd be out of jobs and it would be very lovely. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but in trauma healing, I really see it as kind of this four step process. And I, I hate to put like steps or phases on anything because it makes it sound simple and like <clears throat> you just do this and then you do this and then you do this and then you do this and the trauma's gone. Right. And that's not what I really mean by there's four steps. It's more of like there's four phases um or four steps that you kind of go through and, and the step is gonna look different for everybody. Um, but there are these these kind of stages you walk through and I've got a tip my hat to Judith Herman here, who's a fabulous researcher in trauma. She wrote one of the the earliest and most comprehensive texts on trauma called Trauma and Recovery. Um, And her book really informed my understanding of these steps. Um, But first and foremost is you have to confront it. You have to confront um, what happened to you and acknowledge that it was traumatic. And I work with so many trauma survivors who will do anything and everything they can to minimize and deny the fact that what they experienced was trauma. It wasn't that bad. Someone had it worse. They didn't mean it that way. I deserved it. All of these things we do to minimize it. And you've got to admit that what happened to you was horrific and traumatic. And that can be so scary. That can be psychologically Mm -hmm. threatening, which is why we practice denial and avoidance. But without appreciating it for, for what it is in all its ugliness, um, there's no way that we can confront it. And so once we've named it, that's step one, then we have to establish safety because trauma really comes from a lack of, of experiential safety. Um, and it is impossible, or I will say next to impossible, to heal from trauma while in the midst of a traumatic or chaotic situation. Um, so we don't do PTSD treatment with 
um, soldiers who are still on the front lines fighting in the battle. We just don't. It's not going to work because your survival instincts should be kicking in to keep you alive. It becomes problematic when you exit the stressful or life-threatening situation. Um, So we want to establish safety. And this is both physical and relational safety. Um, This can be through grounding techniques, having a therapist who can contain you and your experience, a support group to help regulate you. Um, But establishing safety is key. And then we get to the phase called remembrance and mourning. And this is where everyone wants to start. I want to tell my trauma story. I want to process the emotions. And yes, we must do that. But first, we have to name it for what it is and establish safety. And then we get to that remembrance and mourning. We actually process all of the feelings that came from trauma. And this is the meat of trauma work. Um, And I highly, highly, highly recommend having a professional walk you through this phase. Um, Not doing this alone, because that can feel really unsafe and vulnerable. Having an expert there to say, this is normal. This is not. This is what we do about this. This is not permanent. You can recover from this. Just having someone to walk you through that can be really helpful, not doing it alone. Yeah. And then once um, once you're able to do that, the final stage is, is the reconnecting and integrating what you learned along your healing journey and your, into your day-to-day life and your relationships. And I always tell people when they start trauma therapy that you're never going to go back to the life and the mindset you had prior to your trauma. You can't unsee what you've seen. You can't forget what you now know. Yeah. But you can integrate it into your life in a way that it's no longer controlling you. And that's what the reconnection phase is. Um, So walking through those four steps. Now, there's a ton of different theories. Um, There are a multitude of different therapies um, that people use to do this. And and when I really like zoom out and take the 30,000 foot view, they're all walking people through these four stages um, of confronting it, naming it, establishing safety, practicing remembrance and warning, and then reconnecting. So whether you're doing that through um, more somatic therapies that help you establish safety in your body or cognitive therapies that really get at your your thought patterns that have emerged as a result of your trauma, we're all doing the same thing of walking through those four strategies. Thank you for sharing those because I think it helps to make it less scary because I think – You've definitely, you know, if any at any point you've acknowledged maybe you've had a trauma or you know that you've had a trauma and you're thinking, okay, like I'm going to have to work through this and it can seem so daunting and so overwhelming and just bring up so emotion just by thinking, how am I going to do this? And yeah. I think like you said, it's integral. Like you have to have somebody that can walk you through it and knows what they're doing and is educated and informed and helps to walk you through it because it's not simple, of course. Um, And although, like we said, you know, you can lay out phases um, and stages and it's not simple and it's not straightforward and everyone's situation and and what they've gone through is so unique and looks different. But those stages, I really feel like do help does help to make it seem less overwhelming and less scary and at least you know you know what it's going to look like yeah it's the roadmap and then yeah. you have a therapist that can be your gps telling you when to make a left turn when to stop <laughs> right. um, but yeah it's not it's not the the exact directions but you're right it does make it a little less scary to just kind of know where we're going and what the end goal is yeah i love that so yeah. i 
<laughs> I can't wait to jump into this topic because you um, hinted at it a few minutes ago of, you know, social media portraying there to be, you know, one step or one thing that you have to implement into your routine that is going to be the thing that's going to help you to overcome something, something so complex. Um, And that's just not true. So let's talk about self-care because I know that you have strong feelings about it. So what is the deal with self-care? I know many people say it's the answer to many things, yeah. <laughs> um, but but what is it good for and what isn't it good for? Oh, yeah. Do we have time for a whole nother podcast episode? Right. I, could, I could fully go into this, but yeah, briefly, um, like I was saying before, self-care is one of those things that gets thrown around on the internet of like, just self-care your way out of it. And that can be really like gaslighting to somebody who's like, I'm trying everything I can to keep my head above water. And you're telling me to just take a nap or a bubble bath and I'll feel better. Like it's, it can really minimize the struggle of what somebody is going through. Um, and I think self-care is like this buzzword that's totally misunderstood. Um, we really think it's just like pour yourself a glass of wine, kick your feet up and watch your favorite TV show. And sometimes that's self-care, but that is far from the whole picture. Um, and I, when I think of self-care, the analogy I like to use is like, what would mothering yourself look like? Or what would a good loving mother suggest here? And, and sometimes mom's going to drop all her responsibilities and play with you just to experience joy. And sometimes mom's going to say, no, we're not having cookies for dinner and you need to brush your teeth because that's what's healthiest for you. So it's not always just indulging yourself. It's really stepping back and saying, what's going to make my life more manageable and sustainable? And so there's all these like really unsexy elements of self-care, like (laughs) going to the doctor and the dentist, getting your oil changed, returning that phone call, like all the things that we don't want to do, but we know are going to make our lives um, better and more comfortable. And I really feel strongly about this, that self-care does not treat trauma. You can't self-care your way out of a trauma reaction. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Right. <laughs> not, that's not it. Um, what you can do is practice self-care to give yourself a sort of like safety net and baseline to return to so that you can incrementally walk through those four steps I explained. So that you can name your trauma for what it is and confront it and mourn the losses of the things that were not afforded to you because of your trauma. And you can do the hard work of re-regulating your nervous system because you have this comfortable space to relax in. And so that's what self-care is good for. But in and of itself, it doesn't fix trauma. It doesn't take the pain away. It just makes it so that you can feel safe enough to confront the pain. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much for making that distinguishment. And I love your post on this because it's one of the only places that I've seen really dive into self-care and what it's helpful for and what it's not helpful for. So I really love that. Um, So I know there are some standard treatments, right? For like OCD, anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. Is there like a best treatment for trauma? Yeah. um, I I might have a a hot take on that. Um, Some, some, (laughs) trauma therapists will like, you know, swear by their form of trauma treatment. And I think that there are some that are more helpful and some that are less helpful, but I don't think there's this one, like every person with a trauma history needs to do EMDR. I don't think that that's true. I think a good trauma therapist will hear your trauma narrative and suggest the best therapy to you, um, based on 
A, who you are as a person and B, the type of trauma that you have experienced. And that is so nuanced here. So I can't say like, you know, right. this, this EBP for sexual assault or this particular protocol for combat veterans, um, it's different, but there are a couple of really like popular ones that are very evidence-based. So they've done a ton of research to show that they work. Um, those being cognitive processing therapy, um, which is, is based on cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's, it's specific to people who have had a traumatic event in their life. And it works really well for people who have, um, more of a, a single incident trauma. So like a sexual assault, um, some type of violence that happened. Um, there's another type of trauma therapy called prolonged exposure, um, that can help you to become desensitized to your triggers so that they don't dysregulate you quite as much. Again, really good for discrete single incident traumas. Um, EMDR is another evidence-based practice um, that's really great for um, all types of trauma and in particular more of like chronic traumas. Um, There's also trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I know a little less about that because I don't, I'm not trained in it and I don't practice it. Um, But then there's, you know, just standard talk therapy, psychodynamic therapy, attachment-focused therapies. Um, And I personally blend a couple of those. I'm kind of psychoanalytic in my orientation, but pull a lot from cognitive processing and prolonged exposure. Um, And then another type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, or it's commonly referred to as ACT, um, that helps you to accept the things that have happened to you and stop resisting them um, to really get at the avoidance piece that's so um, heavily relied upon in trauma. Um, So if you're looking to start trauma therapy, I would maybe research some therapists in your area or in your state that practice any of those evidence-based practices um, and have an honest conversation with them about like, hey, this is what happened to me. This is what I'm working on. Uh, Which therapy do you think is best? And that's, that's part of our job as therapists is to help guide our clients who are not the experts in what's going to be most helpful to them. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. So I can put some links um, too in the show notes. I think some places like Psychology Today, um, Mm -hmm. those sorts of places can help you to find a therapist. But like you said, it's so good to ask the questions of here's what I've been through. You know, how do you think that you could help me? What what do you offer? What's your sort of style? All really important things to ask. So I have so much enjoyed our conversation, Megan, and I know that people will find what you share on social media, and I'm sure all your other resources to be really helpful. So if people want to find and connect with you further, where can they find you? Yeah, I spend the most time hanging out on Instagram. Um, So you can find me there. It's Dr. Megan Johnson, Dr. M-E-G-A-N Johnson. Um, I love posting just insights from therapy sessions there. Um, or, you know, things I've come across in my own research as well as reels, which I know you love posting too, because it just kind of mm-hmm. lightens the mood and mental health should be fun. It doesn't have to yes. be so serious all the time. Yes. Um, so please connect with me there. I love, I love that community. Um, and then I've got a psychotherapy practice called Woven Together Trauma Therapy. Um, based in Santa Monica, we treat folks all throughout California. Our website is woventraumatherapy.com. And then my educational platform is open worldwide and that's called traumastery.com. 
So cool. We will link to all of those in the show notes. And thank you so much, Megan, for coming on and talking to us and sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Healthy Push. If you want more, head on over to ahealthypush.com for the show notes and lots more tips, tools, and inspiration that will support your recovery. And if you're hoping for me to cover a certain topic, be sure to join my Instagram community at A Healthy Push and let me know in the comments what you want to hear next.